Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of The Edric Show. I am your host, Edric Jerome. This is the place for intelligent conversation with interesting people. Go ahead and hit that like button, hit that notification bell, and you will get notified when we post these interesting conversations each and every week. My guest today is internationally renowned designer and author, Manuel Lima. He's here to discuss his latest book, The New Designer, Rejecting Myths, Embracing Change. Manuel was named one of the 50 most creative and influential minds by Creativity Magazine, and he is a fellow of the Royal Society of Arts. He's a leading voice on information visualization, and he's been a featured speaker at more than 100 high-profile conferences, universities, and festivals across four continents. Manuel has been featured in Wired Magazine, The New York Times, Business Week, um, and El País, and he's the founder of visualcomplexity.com. He's also a teacher at the Parsons School of Design. Lastly, he has over 15 years of experience designing digital experiences and leading product teams at such companies as Google, Microsoft, and Nokia. Manuel, I'm honored to welcome you to The Edric Show. Thank you so much, Eric. It's a pleasure to be here. All right, let's get into it. Uh, first of all, what was your inspiration and motivation for writing this book? Well, uh, for me, the motivation was kind of surfacing slowly through the years, right? It was not something that just came out of nowhere. Uh, roughly five years ago, I went through a, a bit of a midlife crisis. Mm -hmm. And I don't really like the word crisis because I think it's actually... Uh, an opportunity for reflection, for introspection, for reflecting upon yourself, what you want to be doing with the time sure. that we have left, right? So I, I did a lot of that. And and I was living in New York with my two kids. Uh, it was a rough uh, time uh, going through that transition myself, understanding, you know, what do I wanted to do with the rest of my career? And it was also an opportunity for me to reflect upon the design discipline itself, which mm -hmm. I which I had been practicing for 15 plus years. And looking back, I remember working at places like small startups, but also large tech companies like Google and, and Microsoft, and really reflecting on how design was actually operating in those environments. And yes, sometimes design was doing good things, but sometimes it was contributing to uh, platforms to you know for products uh, applications that were not very good in nature so that was really my why my quest started like trying to understand why why despite design being so wanting to reach this like positive goal for society for for the common good why do we recurrently fall into this moral trap this moral disengagement where we don't really seem to care about the the negative impact we are having in the outside world so that was for me a kind of like a, a burning question that started to lit up in my head. And then slowly, some of the ideas for the book uh, started uh, germinating. But it was very different, I guess. The, the, the first time I, I was thinking about the book, it was kind of the, um, almost writing to a young version of myself, mm. kind of format of like letters to, uh, to a young designer or letters to a young writer. And that was kind of like where I started, but then it, it morphed into this list of myths that are really becoming shackles and, and blocking designers' uh, vision from seeing what really matters and uh, from, from seeing the, the true positive impact that they can actually have in, in the real world. 
there's so many interesting topics, as I was mentioning to you before we started the interview, and you raised so many questions. And as an end user of products that are, you know, industrially designed, uh, it, it it triggered a lot of thoughts in me in terms of just looking at how products get to me and the footprint and what happens just to get these products to uh, end users. Um, one of the things that stuck out to me is you write about, uh, unlike other domains of knowledge like medicine and law, uh, which require pledging uh, an oath to ethical behavior, there is no such requirement for the discipline of design. Um, can you speak to that and talk about why yeah. ethics should be paramount to designers and their teams going forward? Yeah, it always struck me as as very awkward the, the, what you just stated, right? The fact that I back in college when I was studying, I had you know different friends studying you know things like medicine and law. They are very strong in their sort of uh, uh, ethical framework, right? Uh, because it really drives a lot of the work that they end up doing and how they are they, they end up doing the, the the work itself. And it struck me as designers and architects as primary shapers of our material culture, right? Mm-hmm. Basically, there's almost there's you can just turn your head around and everything you see has probably been designed by a designer or an architect. And having that amount of responsibility, but no concern whatsoever about ethical behavior, right? It strikes me as rather awkward because, again, the amount, the footprint that we have in our natural and in our artificial world is tremendous. So that should also come with a tremendous amount of responsibility and a really deep concern for ethics. And that's still unfortunately absent from most design curriculums and most design programs that I know of across the world. So I think that's a really like strong paradox that I would love to change. It's not the only gap that I mentioned in the book. Sure. Apart from ethics, you know, there's also the gap of psychology and cognitive science. Uh, this in part because the design discipline has been too often connected to art. And, and still today, design is being taught in many art schools. And I think that dissociation with science has kept design apart from really benefiting from uh, all the knowledge that can come from cognitive science, understanding the human brain. Because for the most part, a lot of what we do is directed to a human being. So understanding how we think, how the brain operates, a lot of the cognitive behaviors, a lot of the the biases that we have is of tremendous importance and relevance for many designers or all designers, I would argue. So that would be another gap. And of course, the final third gap is... um, environment environmental science itself right uh, understanding a little bit more about ecology and i think this is slowly changing but you still have a lot of design programs uh where where this concern for ecology is not even being in on the table itself hmm. uh, another concept you you talk about in the book is you you deconstruct the myth of the sole genius you use steve jobs as an example uh, yeah. and you discuss the end of the quote-unquote singular design hero era um, what are the benefits for designers to moving away from those concepts and become more team-based or, uh, I guess, inclusive in their in their de- approach to design? Well, I mean, I think it it comes down to the benefits of collaboration. Like all big achievements we have done, you know, across the world as as a society, as as a species, right, have been for the most part a collaborative effort, right. So a lot of the things that we take took take for granted today either a mobile app or a given platform that you use every day and you depend on is likely going to be designed by not a single designer, right? Mm -hmm. Not a single hero designer that you know by name, but by a team of designers that 
brainstorm, work together, trying to figure out the best solution for this. And many of them are working on like smaller bits and pieces of that ultimate experience, right? So I think it's, the benefit is that there's just more people looking at this. And then that's where diversity comes from, uh, comes in, in my view is a more diverse team makes for a much better product, a much better solution, right? Specifically, when it comes to products that are used by, not by thousands or even millions, but by billions of people, Diversity in those cases is absolutely paramount, right? Because if you're creating a product like many of the companies in Silicon Valley are for roughly 1 billion people, that's one eighth of the world, right? Now imagine the amount of diversity contained in that 1 billion people, right? So somehow you need to reflect or at least aspire to reflect the same level of diversity of thought, of thinking, of you know race, background, nationality, just that diversity in itself on the team that's actually building this together should reflect to a certain degree that immense diversity of, of, of the human nature, right? Uh, but I think the benefit, of course, is obvious that more brains are involved in this and better things can come out of that. I think it's more the challenge for designers understanding that they don't have to aspire to this, like becoming the single hero anymore because it doesn't exist, mm -hmm. right? We have moved on in many ways from this from this uh, view of of the design world, but it's also understanding the new challenges that come with it. So it requires with collaboration. There's also a lot of need for you to understand the the social skills, right? Understanding how to properly work together with other people, right? How do you build trust? How do you become flexible to accepting other people's feedback, other other people's opinions? other people's skill sets, right? So all of these plays a huge role today in the work of a designer. It's not just about having a brilliant idea anymore. It's, of course, knowing how to collaborate well with other people and, of course, knowing how to persuade and influence other people that your idea might be the the right one for, for this specific problem. Um, and again, like I said, your book raised so many interesting and, and, and just great questions and, and things to think about. Um, because my next question is, um, how can industrial designers ensure that future designs do not contribute to the ongoing problem of social inequality um, and that their designs are accessible to people of all income levels and abilities? Wow, that's a tough one. And I do mention this in the book. I think a lot of it can come from what I was mentioning about like the, the aspect of inclusion and diversity in the team itself. A team, a more diverse and inclusive team is more attuned to the differences outside of the norm, right? Outside of what is considered to be normal, right? Are there being for, you know, uh, sources of income or, or different types of, of social uh, economical traits and behaviors? So a diverse and inclusive team would be, would have that in mind by, yeah. by just its nature. Uh, and that's, you know, the, the beautiful benefit of, of diversity. Now, I think there's a lot to say about, focusing on people with specific needs. And we have various cases across the world where a given product that all of us benefit has been created with a specific um, type of, uh, of disability in mind. And I think that's where you should perhaps start. There's a great example of, you know, the Oxo grip, the potato peeler that was mm -hmm. created mm -hmm. with, for, you know, for treating arthritis, for being soft with people suffering from arthritis. So there's other examples, the toothpaste that we use today with a single, that we can use with a single end to open the, the, the cap instead of like a spinning uh, cap. 
it's all of these things have been created with some sort of like uh, disability in mind in the beginning, but then it created something. It really simplified the process for everyone, so everyone can benefit from from this type of thinking when you're focusing on a specific sort of like um, specific need that people might might have. Everyone can benefit uh, as an outcome. Uh, quick aside, I, I came from the world of healthcare, and I know. Uh, ergonomic products uh, was a, a large, uh, I guess, area of opportunity to ensure that the products and the tools and the things that people are using on an everyday basis doesn't cause them harm. And so it, it seems to me that, um, you know, that that kind of came from that thinking of, you know, yeah, people can use these products, but if it's giving them carpal tunnel or if it's making their back hurt, we have to come up with something different. And I guess that's where that um, more awareness on the real, on the part of designers comes into play. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because designers have too often been focused on, and, you know, even myself, I remember studying a lot of these books that were focused on the norm. You know, if you're creating something, let's do like, what is the normal height of a person? Mm -hmm. What is the normal sort of like dimensions of a person or like the normal sort of range of a finger? Like all these things are, are at this like ideal of a normalized person in mind. When that normalized person doesn't really exist, it's a fictitious character. (laughs) And yet, by creating something for this fictitious normal person, we are leaving everyone else aside, specifically the people at the fringes, the people that with specific disabilities. And again, it's not just people with like permanent disability. Sometimes you and I can go through a process, a time where we might have an injury on an arm and a leg. We might have an injury. We even, as we age, we get our sight, you know, uh, will not improve likely. <laughs> so... <laughs> There's a tendency for all of us, really all of us, to suffer some sort of like temporal disability during our lifetime. So by having disability as a key factor on, you know, creating designs that really fulfill the proper needs of people, it's a much better way of thinking because, again, it really benefits everyone instead of just like fictitious normal person. Um, you have a lot of interesting thoughts on uh, technology, and uh, which is such a vital part of everyday human experience here on the planet. Uh, yet technology always has the harm to create the potential to create harm in terms of things like invasion of privacy, uh, creating addictive behavior. You talk about, you know, things like social media and creating what I term technological segregation in terms of not being available to everyone on an equal basis. Um, what can designers do to make sure that technology does not increase harm to end users? Um, because, you know, technology we needed, but at the same time, where are the guardrails to ensure it's not actually harming society in some way? Yeah, I think I think we have to question more. I think we really are uh, ethics can only go so far as our line of reason or a lot of questioning, right? We have to like question nonstop what we are doing, what is the goal, how is it going to be used, who is benefiting from this, right? If everything we do, right, we have to continue questioning its purpose and its goal. And I talk about many examples. One example being the Amazon Prime, where Amazon mm-hmm. Prime. You know, came out, and and this is on on the book. Um, immediately, a lot of neighborhoods in the U.S. were out, were completely uh, out of of their plan, and a lot of these neighborhoods were by you know black residents, mm-hmm. historically black residents, and a lot of people. There was a public art, outcry for Amazon Prime, or you know, what are you going to do? This is a completely racist sort of uh, you know behavior. How can you do this? And then, of course, Amazon is like, hey, we're not to blame, right? Just, you know, this is an algorithm. This is data. Data cannot be racist, right? They, they are always like super objective, right? Technology is objective. Can, technology cannot be biased. And, of course, that's all completely nonsense because we all know that's not true. 
And as soon as they digged in, they understood that the algorithm, the data that we're actually using was basing in the whole like racist redlining that happened, you know, decades and decades before. So here we see systemic racism perjuring and entering into this like Silicon Valley sort of like era in a way that is completely uh, almost unnoticed. Uh, and I think that case specifically is just one of many where racism is fully integrated into into our society and technology. And we have to question, right? And the, the role of designers involved in this, like what data is being used? Where did this data came from? Like who is who benefited from the creation of this data in the first place, right? And how was it worked on? Like, why was it analyzed? How was it transformed? Like there's so many biases and opportunities for like uh, unethical behavior to come in as we treat the data. Sometimes even the data that we actually have, the source, of course, we have to question the source itself, where it came from, who created it, to what goal. But then even if the source is okay, right, there's still a lot of biases that come in by just three, treating the data, by cleaning the data, by parsing the data, right? So we have to question all of those processes and we have to expect and demand transparency throughout all of these processes. So yes, it's a little bit of a burden on designs, but it is our responsibility to question everything that we are involved in. Uh, either data or or the products that we are creating, how are they being used? Who's benefiting from this, right? Who's actually making money from this? And is how is that being uh, actually used by people? Designers have to understand that by creating a mobile app, they're not just creating a little icon on a screen. This icon is a companion, right? People spend more time with their phones than with many of their own close mm -hmm. friends. And relatives. Exactly. So do you want to create a companion on someone's pocket that is like demanding, always craving for attention, right? Always like becoming, you know, creating you very addictive type of behavior, or you want to create a companion that is actually a friend that's supporting you. That's, you know, really wanting you to, to be the best version of yourself. That's the thing that designers need to worry about, not just the pixel perfect icon, right? But the ultimate goal, the ultimate experience that users will benefit from. Uh, you actually answered my next question because that was exactly my next question, which was um, the, the the data systems and that are being programmed into these AI uh, applications that are inherently uh, discriminatory. But what I what I would like to do is ask an aspect of that question is, um, given that you know some of those data applications, we are moving more and more towards a service based systems, meaning uh, applications for job applications. Everything now is is becoming a systems based type of interaction where you're actually interacting with AI and not a human being. So uh, the challenge I see is that, to your point, you have to be sure that those things are programmed correctly so that the inherent racism and bias is not built into the system so that people actually have an equitable experience when they're using these systems, I would think. I, I, that's my biggest worry is that there's so many examples of of a large number of biases being infiltrating uh, being infiltrated in a lot of these systems either you know unconsciously or consciously right we, we have to assume both intentions here uh so that I'm very cautious about this rise of automated systems for you know for you to, for order to like, to find uh a role in university to, for you to like find a job for you to like so many things now are based on automated systems making the decisions for us right for humans and i worry because like there's no one we can like, even complain because the answer you normally have is like if you think you're being <laughs> sort of mistreated it's like hey you know the the computer says so the system mm -hmm. says so and the system is always right as if we are talking about this like all-knowing oracle 
right? This godlike entity, which is absurd that we give uh, such an automated system created by humans such a big, uh, such a high level of importance as we tend to do, right? As if there's no flaws, right? It's a flawless, flawless system that can never get things wrong, can never be biased, can never be racist. It's actually absurd. And I think we need to be all aware that this is not true. And we should fight back against a lot of this like, rise in automated sy systems, making big decisions that really, truly influence our lives, all of us. Uh, approximately about a third of your book is devoted to the environmental impact of design uh, and where some of the opportunities moving forward to uh, you know, lessen the negative impact on the environment that we all you know, need and depend on. Um, you discussed the fact that companies are rushing to be green or sustainable on paper, uh, but not always in practice. So how can industrial designers incorporate sustainability in their designs uh, in a meaningful way and not just in a quote unquote corporate advertising or promotional way? Right. Well, I mean, it has to be, I think it's almost your question kind of provides the answer. It's the fact that designers in many companies uh, are actually treating this as a single product, right? They are treating colleges like that's do the single green product as if this is the solution for everything else, right? It's not, it is a mindset. The mindset has to change completely mm -hmm. and drastically of the company that everything that they do has this purpose in mind, right? Ultimately, designers have to understand that everything that they do, our ultimate stakeholder is never a human being. Yes, those people will end up using and experiencing your product, your solution, your platform, your experience, but your ultimate stakeholder is the environment. Because a lot of the things that we create, both physical and digital, will outlive our human users, our customers, sometimes by many centuries, right? Centuries from now, these products will still be here. None of us will, but these products will be here. And many of them have not been created with that long span in mind, right? Mm -hmm. They have been created only thinking about the for the specific usage of that human being, of that fellow customer. And that's, in my view, tremendously responsible and we cannot continue like throwing all these things into the world in this like vacuum of consequences because it's hurting all of us and it's of course hurting the environment even more so so it is thinking about whether we put something out that yes benefits this transient user of that experience but what happens afterwards what happens post-usage hmm. it's also our responsibility again because these things will still be around for many centuries so it's we, we cannot abstain ourselves from that responsibility because we created this. We put this into the world, right? And digital things is the same thing. Digital, I, I say in the book, digital will not save us because we tend to think about digital as something very, or at least more ecologically benign that doesn't consume much energy. And it's, of course, absurd, right? Think about the cloud, the cloud or the internet itself is I think the equivalent of, of the fifth, if it was a country, would be the right. fifth largest polluter, right? Mm -hmm. So the digital is no benign force in the world at all. It's when the cloud are actually server farms plugged into electrical plugs and consuming a tremendous amount of energy, right? Just to keep the machines cooled down. So there's no such thing. So we have to really understand that our responsibility does not end when we actually launch a product, when we launch the solution, when it's out in the world. That's actually just the starting of our responsibility in many ways. So understanding how we what we create ends up being reused, 
how it ends up being transformed, how it ends actually being uh, filtered into the natural systems, like all of that needs to be taken into account by by designers as well. Um, when I finished the book, I, I was struck with this question, and, and, uh, and this is one I definitely wanted to ask you about. Uh, in most cases, uh, industrial designs and subsequent products are based on long-term profitability for investors and shareholders. Um, so can the concepts of ethical, sustainable, and inclusive design coexist in the world of profits and shareholder dividends? Uh, in other words, um, will designers be able to follow the noble concepts that you lay out in your book but still have consistent access to the capital and investment that's needed to bring these products through. I think so. I, I think you you see the green movement is is growing so much, and and to be honest, even looking at the amount of like ecological driven startups today is just tremendous. Which is not just like a sign that yes, there's there's money to be made in being green and being truly ecologically driven, but also it's giving a lot of designers more opportunities to jump. Defense. And if you're not happy with your work, if you're not happy with your job, and if you find like your company is tremendously unethical, not doing the right thing for society, right, or for the environment, hey, there's actually other places where that they might be doing the right thing, and you might feel much more fulfilled with that mission. So nothing is stopping you. Just you know, jump the fence. It's not the end of the world. And and there's so many interesting startups uh, these days that are actually doing the right thing for for the planet. Um, you now, I want to switch gears and, and talk a little bit more about you. And so, uh, tell me about visualcomplexity.com. How did it start? Uh, yeah. what's the, the motive, the goals behind it? And tell me a little bit about that. Wow. That's, that's, uh, started a long time ago. Uh, when was that started? Okay. Oh, yeah, it started like 2005. So more <laughs> than 18 years ago, I guess, uh, time flies. <laughs> that's for sure. It does. It does. It's, uh, well, visual complexity started off as, um, really after college, really after my master's degree at Parsons School of Design. And during my master's program, I was really into complex systems and ways of visualizing networks. And for my thesis, I did uh, a visualization of the information spread across the blogosphere, across blogs, which back then in 2004 were a brand new thing. You know, there was all these like sayings that the blogs will ruin, <laughs> ruin all the newspapers. It's mm -hmm. like the, the, you know, the, the normal proclamations they make when a new medium like that comes out. It's going to change everything. It's going to, you know, change the world. Uh, didn't change the world as dramatically as I think as many people were hoping or expecting. But it did, however, create a really interesting sort of uh, social experiment for us to understand how information spreads from point A to point B. And that was really the where my thesis was focusing on understanding how memes, like specific units of information, spread from like blog A and then spread across multiple blogs. And then understanding who is the first person to notice and spread the news and how does that actually spread, how the contamination actually occurs. So in order to do this, I had to start collecting all these examples of ways of visualizing networks and systems. And I, I collected a lot. And then after my master's, uh, I started working and I was finding these like having a full weekend for myself was just such a luxury <laughs> that you don't have at, at grad school. And all of a sudden, I was just trying to find something to do with my free time. And I started creating visual complexity. So pulling together all that research into a website 
And that research is still available uh, online where you can see a variety of different examples of, of network visualizations from social networks to uh, you know family trees to computers, uh, computer networks, just everything you can think of, biological networks, just full gamut of, of different types of network visualization. Uh, and I know when we're running out of time, we don't have time to go into it, but you actually draw the line from that to our current political process and how uh, politics today is shaped by those types of sharing of information, uh, not necessarily from, quote unquote, uh, traditional news sources, but the blogosphere and places like that where people share these ideas and concepts and galvanize political groups for uh, action. So um, I, I found that very interesting when you were, you were writing about that piece as well. Yeah. Um Lastly, for you, uh, tell me about where your love of design, how did it originate uh, as a kid? Were you, was this something that you always knew you wanted to do? Uh, how did it become your life's work? It's, it's, I mean, it's, it's, diff it's always hard to pinpoint an exact moment. Um, I think I wanted to be a fireman. <laughs> First, I loved the whole, like, <laughs> I just find it really, I guess most, most kids like firemen for some reason. Uh, I wanted. I I went from wanting to be a fireman to wanting to be an architect, but then I, when I was sixteen, I think that's when I really wanted. I knew I I, I learned really about design, and I, I I wanted to know even more about design. And I read this book called "Design Is Art" by Bruno Munari, this Italian designer, and I love that book. I read it, you know, maybe two times, and I love that book. Because what Munari does is that he brings this very pragmatic view of design. Uh, Bruno, uh, uh, um, Bruno Munari in that book is very against this idea of design as an art a field dedicated for the elite, right? Something that you just get to see at a museum. And that really struck a chord with me and really resonated because I was completely against this idea that this design is something that you actually get to see at a museum. I was completely against it. I think it was design was a very pragmatic thing to help humans, not just being something that we don't even allow to touch somewhere in a, in a, in a gallery or a museum. So that vision was really important. And then I think I was, I was falling in love with design in different ways. One of them was through maps. I was a little bit obsessed with uh, old school maps uh, we used to travel a lot as a family. My dad used to travel uh, quite a lot in business as well. And we had this cabinet of maps back in the day when we, there was no GPS and mobile phones. Right. We had all these like physical maps of places and cities that we had visited. And I remember like for some reason, if I was maybe 14 or 13, I decided to catalog the whole thing, organize it by, you know, country and region and whatnot. And uh, it was Fascinating, just like opening all these maps, understanding this this graphical language that they created and symbols and visual metaphors. And I was just really, really blown away by its diversity, right? Like how interesting some of these things were in the different countries and just understanding this as a language, right? It was almost like a completely different alphabet altogether. And that's, I think, where my uh, sort of other passion for design started uh, sort of germinating a little bit.
Well, Manuel, uh, I really thank you for coming on the show today. If people want more information about you or the book, uh, you know, or your speaking engagements, you, as I said in the opening, you are a world-renowned, uh, highly sought-after motivation or not motivation, but speaker, and and you share your ideas and you're a thought leader. If people want more information about you, uh, where can they go? You, they can just uh, Google my name, Manuel Lima, or just like LinkedIn. Uh, I'm very active on LinkedIn. If you if they want to follow me on LinkedIn, I, I normally post uh, a bunch on LinkedIn about random posts about my book, but not only about my book, about something related. So if you want to get in touch, I think LinkedIn is probably the best one. Or my website, which is mslima.com, www.mslima.com. And yes, I would love if there's any other questions, I would love to answer uh, any of your listeners for sure. Awesome. Well, again, uh, it's a great read. Uh, my guest has been Manuel Lima, his latest book, The New Designer, Rejecting Myths, Embracing Change. Uh, you will not look at products in your household the same way after reading his book. Uh, it is very, very well written. Uh, and again, you raise a lot of interesting questions and really uh, changing the way people need to think about design and how it affects uh, not just the end user, but the globe and the environment. And uh, it's just a remarkable, remarkable read. So thank you for sharing that book and sharing your ideas. Thank you so much, Edric. I really appreciate it. You're very welcome. This has been another edition of The Edric Show. As I always tell you, this is the place for intelligent conversation with interesting people. Go ahead and hit that like button. Go ahead and hit that notification bell and you will get notified when these interesting conversations are posted each and every week. I want to thank you for tuning in and I will catch you on the next episode.